0: Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15 will be in verses 10 through 20 this morning as Jesus introduces us to, and as we look at together, the problem of the heart, or really that our biggest problem is our own heart, the problem of the heart. As we walk through these verses together this morning, we will see that the only antidote for our legalistic hearts is the gospel of grace. The only antidote for our legalistic hearts is the gospel of grace. Now, in saying this, what I'm not doing is calling out a few legalists among us. What I'm doing is saying we all have a tendency, and the only thing that can change this tendency in our hearts is God's grace. So I'll begin reading in Matthew 15, verse 10. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. Well, last week, we looked at the first part of what's a three-part conversation about this idea of legalism, or the way Jesus puts it, sort of holding up the word of God on the one hand and human tradition, kind of capital T tradition, on the other hand. And last week, in the first section of this conversation, Jesus talked with the Pharisees and scribes, and in doing so, he was very confrontational. Uh, You may remember he called them hypocrites, he was pretty in your face. Well, now he kind of takes that idea and he moves aside to two other groups, what he calls uh, the people here in verse 10. So this is apparently the crowd. That's a fairly brief conversation. And after that, we kind of have this extended conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, kind of explaining all that he's uh, been talking about. So the Pharisees' basic problem is that they've taken the word of God, which is clear, and they've replaced this with their tradition. And so I'm just going to briefly review a couple of things we looked at last week. So what we have is you have the scripture, you have God's written word. Over time, out of fear for violating this word, the Pharisees, scribes, the elders, they had around the word of God built their tradition. Now the tradition was really supposed to be a hedge or a fence around the word of God itself to keep you from violating the word of God. But what happened is over time, this Tradition becomes equated with scripture. You kind of lose the difference between kind of your preferences, your tradition, and scripture itself. And when this happens, inevitably, over time, it leads to this tradition that then rules scripture, assumes an authority over scripture. And we saw that this happens in various ways throughout church history and certainly various ways in the life of the church today. So the question is, what is legalism? Now we think of legalism kind of as adding a bunch of rules and and sort of living life legalistically that way. And that's certainly one aspect of legalism. In other words, it's requiring things that God himself doesn't require. So we saw this in Jesus' conversation with the Pharisees. They require hand-washing before a meal. And Jesus says that's not something that God requires. It's certainly something that you can do. He's not condemning it as an act. He rather is saying a heart that requires that or that expects that for a right relationship with God is a heart that doesn't truly understand the heart of God's grace or the way that God relates to us through his word. So we require what God doesn't require and in doing so, we sort of add to what God has said. But there's another thing that we saw in the life of the Pharisees and that's this. We neglect what God does require. And do you remember this example? So Jesus said, God says, honor your father and mother but you say that whatever I've devoted to my father and mother is Corbin, or it's a gift to God. In other words, I don't have to give that to mom and dad. So we've kind of got these two sides. So legalism can actually be adding to what God says, or it can be taking away from what God says. But the heart of it in either case is replacing what God has actually said with human words or human traditions. So the fundamental truth that the Pharisees failed to understand and that we often miss today is this, that the source of our sin is our sinful heart, not our environment or not some other perspective or not a set of opponents. James chapter one says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God for God doesn't tempt anyone, but rather we are each tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires and tempted. So the source of temptation actually is within us, not outside us. So this isn't to say that there's no evil in the world. It's not to say that there are any there are no external sources of temptation. Clearly there are, and God's word warns against that against that. But what Jesus is getting at here is that our fundamental problem, the root issue that each of us face, isn't that the world out there is so bad, it's that we have hearts that need to be changed. By the grace of God. In other words, there are a couple of different ways of of looking at this. One way is like this it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, politics operates in the world today. So we won't go into a bunch of issues, but we'll say we've got at least two sides. Now I know on the sides of the aisle, there are a lot of sides within those sides. But basically, it works like this. You know, you've got, you've got an issue, and on one side are good people, and on the other side are bad people, and, and we kind of got a, a majority whip, and then a minority whip. This is the way it works in our Congress. And they kind of drum up people to the good side and the bad side and get people to, to come to a vote. And in doing so, they're kind of like, you know, the, the, the opponents are kind of on the other side of the aisle, if you will. You kind of try to win people to your side. Someone recently asked me, they're like, well, how, how can we affect or how can we change the culture of our church. Well, it doesn't work best when a church works like that, where you've got a majority whip and a minority whip, and those people kind of draw people and we kind of you know show up in numbers when the vote's important and when it's when it's not, we, we stay away. What happens is as God changes the culture of our hearts and changes the culture of our collective heart, what we do is we get a sense of how the Spirit is leading us together. And so suddenly we realize that our, our, our main opponent isn't someone over there on kind of the other side of the aisle, if you will. Rather, my biggest problem is my heart. It's a heart that's prone to wander from the God I love. It's a, it's a heart that's prone to see the, the, the speck in someone else's eye rather than the beam in my own eye. It's a, prob- it's a heart that's prone to see a human as my biggest problem when what God tells me is my biggest problem is my sinful heart before the Lord. Now, this is the first time that Jesus has... Has said this is it I mean, he's taught this idea a bunch of times and we're we're just halfway through the book of matthew I mean, he's this is a really really big point You see the reason that evil can have such power in our lives Is that we have hearts that are prone to take something good And misuse it now if you don't think this is true. All you got to do is go back in life now Imagine that I don't know you got an 18 month old or two-year-old kid And you take this kid and you give him a new toy And we'll imagine that this toy, and we'll just, we'll make it foam, but it's a baseball bat, a foam baseball bat. Now, what's, what's this bat for? It's for hitting a ball. What will that child be prone to do with that bat? Hit other things. You would say it's prone to take something good and misuse it. It's prone to take something and suddenly little sister's crying because little brother has hit little sister, right? That, that, that's the way that works. From our very first days, We're prone to take something good, a good gift that God gives us, and we're prone to misuse it. And if this is true in the life of a small child, it doesn't change a whole lot as we grow older. We take, I don't know, bigger foam bats and beat each other with them. And hopefully they're foam and not real bats, right? We're prone to take God's gifts and to misuse them. The reason this is is because God created the world good, Genesis 1, and yet within a very short time, Genesis 3, our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, sinned, and in breaking God's law, they broke God's creation, and in breaking God's creation, we inherit something from them. In other words, we all have something that we call human nature. We all have that. We get that. But part of that human nature is a sin nature, it's an inherited propensity to sin, to take God's good gifts and twist them, to take God's good commandments. And break them. To take God's intention for our lives and misuse God's intentions for our own ends. Part of human nature is a sinful nature. So the question is then: How do we begin to address this tendency—the tendency to take God's good gifts and misuse them? Well, let's track the teaching of Jesus in this passage. So verses eleven, we kind of verses ten and eleven, we get Jesus's basic teaching. In other words, Jesus, up to this point, has responded to the Pharisees by sort of going on the offensive. In other words, they've accused him. Why do your disciples not wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders? Verse 2. Jesus doesn't respond by explaining himself. Rather, he accuses them. Why do you break God's commands for the sake of your tradition? Well, He hasn't really responded to their specific accusations. So now what he does is he takes the crowd aside and he sort of responds with this general teaching in verse 11. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. In other words, here's the bottom line. You ought to be more concerned with what's inside you coming out than what's outside you coming in. Jesus is saying, Pharisees, you are fighting the wrong enemy. It's not that there's no enemy, but you see the enemy out there and there's an enemy within. Now, this is a shocking statement in first century Jewish culture because all of these people, not just the scribes and Pharisees, have been taught from a very young age that the most important thing you can do before a meal is wash your hands. Now, this isn't about germs. It's about ceremonial cleanliness. In other words, This food at some point has likely touched something unclean, an unclean object, perhaps a Gentile merchant. And so the idea is you have to take this, this, and you have to prepare yourself. You have to both prepare the food and prepare yourself as you've come into contact with all sorts of unclean objects. But Jesus says we ought to be more concerned about who we are than what we touch. So Jesus is trying to be very clear. In verse 10, he says, hear and understand. And now we see how the disciples respond, verse 12. Well, their initial response isn't about what Jesus has said, but rather about who he has offended. Verse 12, don't you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? Matthew says the Pharisees were literally scandalized that Jesus would say something so shocking. There's a part of me that kind of chuckles at the disciples asking this. Don't you know you offended them? I mean, Jesus has just called them a bunch of hypocrites. I have an idea that he's guessing they're slightly offended at the way he's interacting with them here. He's not really concerned about offending them, is he? But take a look at the Pharisees' strategy here. First, they come to Jesus to accuse his disciples, don't they? Now it seems that they've come to his disciples... To accuse Jesus, and isn't this how this works? We kind of run around. People are upset that you such and such, or don't you know how people thought about this? And in this case, it's not—it's not the Pharisees coming to Jesus. It's scuttlebutt that sort of trickles its way back to Jesus. And that's not unique to that day. That's—that's that's the way life works today, isn't it? We kind of bare tails, and then we kind of work around kind of a direct approach. Well, look at the disciples. What is Jesus' primary concern? He says, hear and understand. His primary concern is that people understand the truth. What's the disciples' primary concern? That they don't offend anyone. And you see, your target audience affects your goals. Jesus seeks to clearly take the truth of God and communicate God's truth to people, even when it runs against the grain of human nature. The disciples, though, are less concerned about God's truth and pleasing God than they are about pleasing people. In other words, when people are real big and God is small, it tends to twist our priorities. It tends to make us forget our first responsibilities. So then what is Jesus' response, verses 13 and 14? As Jesus often does, he responds with word pictures. The first is a farmer who plants plants, and the second is a blind person guiding other blind people. But every time we've bought a home, and I think we, have, we are living in our several homes, but it's our third home that we bought. Every time we've moved in, there's grass in the yard, but along with all of that grass is a host of other things, weeds. Now, those weeds are the bane of our existence. And uh, now in this case, I've also, you know, met a new enemy and that's a family of moles that I cannot do any. I mean, they are like the most elusive creatures, but we'll stick with the weeds for now. Now, the way this works is the weeds grow a lot better and a lot faster than the grass. You know, the first thing that pops its way up in your yard isn't the grass, it's it's the weeds, and so sometimes you got to you got to work really hard to get rid of those weeds. And so over time, what you're trying to do is sort of lessen the ratio so hopefully the grass can sort of crowd out the weeds. Sometimes you do that by treating it. Sometimes you do that by yanking it up. In other words, what you're trying to do is get the, the bad plants out and, and the good plants to grow. And that's kind of the illustration that Jesus uses here. God is a farmer planting crops, but he's not the only person planting. Alongside the seed that God is throwing out, Someone else is throwing out seed. So God's word, you might say, is is the good crop. It's the good seed, and the Pharisees and their words or their traditions are the other crops. Yet Jesus tells us that God's word is the only true, guide, the only good guide for life and godliness. Now, if you happen to be here last week, I imagine that after a sermon like that, it's real easy to have a conversation like this. Well, if it's tradition versus tradition, or preference versus preference. I mean, at the end of the day, like, how do I say, like, okay, you get your way and I don't get my way? And I think that's a reasonable question. But it's also a question that reveals something to us about our hearts. It reveals that our focus still tends to be on our traditions rather than the word. And if we're not careful... Little T traditions can become capital T traditions, and when they become capital T traditions, they tend to govern and rule our lives. That's where we get into trouble. So if if we can just think about it this way, rather than focusing on the issue itself, we might better start with the question, what has God actually said? Let's, Let's start there from a point where we agree. And so I'm going to take a tradition that's not really a tradition that anyone thinks about, and so the tradition can be this, for instance. It might be what works or what reaches people. So you might say, well, well, this works and now it doesn't work, or this might work or it works in another place. It might just be something that actually does something good that you want it to do, which which is a good thing. But it's not really a good starting point. The starting point isn't what works. The starting point is what has God said? And you always start from what God says and you work your way out from there. And so it's not... It's not bad to ask that question, but it's not the right first question. We kind of work our way out to it. So our starting point is always seeking to be faithful to the word. And what God says is he blesses his word. We plant some water and God gives the increase. Now we're so good. I mean, in our society, we're so good at kind of marketing and engineering everything that we can, we think we can engineer the work of God, but God says, that's not how it works. You can't engineer the Spirit of God. In fact, there are times when it shows up in places that you would expect it to, and there are other times when it shows up in places you don't expect it to. Uh, Many of you know the preacher Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon heard a lot of sermons in his life. His grandfather was a preacher. One day he's trying to go to a church, snowstorm in England. He's on the way. He can't make it to the church he wants to, and so he walks into this little church. He walks in there, and the preacher couldn't make it there either that day. And so there's some guy, a layman, he thinks he was probably a cobbler, or a shoemaker of some sort. And he gets up and he preaches one of the worst sermons he's ever heard. And yet that day, the Spirit of God reached out and touched him. And Charles Spurgeon became a Christian. And thousands of people were saved through his ministry. Why did the Spirit of God show up in that moment? It's not something you can engineer. You have to rather faithfully pursue the Word of God. We work hard according to God's words. And we pray that God will show up. We pray that God will bless his word. Jesus says that the important point is that we start with God's words, or what he says here, the plants that the Father has planted, because every plant that he hasn't planted will be rooted up. I mean, I don't care if you're a drum person or an organ person, they're both going to burn in the end. But God's word will stand forever. Only God's word and God's people will stand. So our starting point is always going to be the word aligning ourselves and our worship as closely as possible with the word. So then how else did Jesus characterize those who are more fixated on tradition, human tradition, than on the word of God? Verse 14, he says, leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. So in this culture, the scribes and the Pharisees are viewed as people who see the word clearly. And yet what Jesus says is they're actually blind. They don't at see the word at all. Now, uh, at the point of life we're at, for whatever reason, if our kids are surprising us in some way, the, the trick to a surprise is to tell your parents to close their eyes. Or as our little guy says, he says, close your eyes, Dad, close your eyes. And, uh, and, and I'm always very careful about closing my eyes because often it involves someone this height leading me around. And so I just got to admit, I cheat sometimes because I want to see where I'm going. Now, I'm not, I'm not trying to see the object or see the surprise, but I want to make sure you know I don't bang my shins on whatever it is that they're walking around, because you want a good guide. If you can't see, you want someone guiding you well. If you've ever hiked anywhere a little bit precarious, you don't want to be walking along there with your eyes closed and have someone else with their eyes closed leading you there. And Jesus says that's what it's like to walk through life, having someone who doesn't know the word, who really doesn't understand the word, guiding you through life. I mean, the picture is of two blind people kind of stumbling along, helping each other, but they're not helping each other because they're both blind. So when we're more committed to tradition than we are to the word of God, that's the kind of blind teacher that'll lead you to fall into a pit. And remember, tradition isn't about old ideas and new ideas. It's rather about human ideas versus God's word. It's anyone who spends time focused primarily on their ideas or human words rather than on God's words. This kind of teaching, Jesus says, inevitably ends in disaster. Jesus doesn't say what might happen, verse 14. He says what will happen. Both will fall into a pit. It's going to happen eventually. So sometimes the most intellectually and culturally enlightened people are the most spiritually blind. A couple of chapters earlier, Jesus has explained why it is that he teaches in parables. He says, because seeing they don't see and hearing they do not hear. So it's possible to see God's word, to hear God's words, and yet not understand the significance of those words. In John chapter 5, Jews are making a plot to kill Jesus. Now, this isn't unusual. This happens quite a few times in Jesus' life. They're going to kill him, and Jesus explains there what he's talking about. He confronts those Jews. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, those who search the scriptures and truly know God's words, know that God's words lead us to Jesus. Jesus is the perfect child who never sinned, the perfect teen who never rebelled against his parents, the perfect adult who perfectly fulfilled God's law, lived a life so that we might have life through him. He's the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, a sacrificial death. He died in the place of sinners so that anyone who turns to him and trusts him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, it's one thing to hear that God loves you. It's one thing to know that God loves you, but it's something else all together to know that God loves you, to know that God's love is shed on you in particular, that God knows your pain, that God knows your life, that God knows your hurt, that God knows even your personal resentment against him for all the things that have happened to you. And yet, in spite of this, he loves you and sheds his love for you through the blood of Christ. It's something to know it out there, and it's something altogether different when it touches you right in your heart. Because the problem of the heart is our deepest problem. And so this morning, if you don't know Jesus by faith, would you turn from your sin and trust him today? Well, this leads us to the bulk of Jesus' teaching as he drives it home in verses 15 through 20. So in verse 15, Peter asks for an explanation. Jesus responds with a surprise in verse 16. You still don't understand? And then in verses 17 through 20, Jesus explains in detail what it is he means. He says, I'm talking body parts and food. Now, our English translations, they're they're PG, so they kind of clean this up for us uh, a little bit. So in verse 17, when he says it's expelled, it literally, the text says, goes out into the toilet. It's talking about using the restroom. And I'll let you, in your own terms, describe to your children in everyday language what's happening here. After you eat, you use the restroom, and in using the restroom, you remove the contamination from the food that you've consumed. So that contamination is relatively short-lived, but the things that come out of our mouths, Jesus says, that's the real problem. In our culture, we use heart in at least two ways. One is our literal beating heart. And the other is uh, just a figurative sense. You might say that person is the heart of the team. Or I love the heart of that person. And that's the sense that Jesus is talking about here. It's an indescribable part that is the core of who we are. In In other words, when something comes from the very center of us, from kind of the place we feel and believe and want, that is our heart. That's the Jewish idea of heart. It's the center of human personality. Well... Jesus lists a bunch of really bad things in verse 19, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, etc. Mark includes a longer list. So it's not a point about the individual sins. Rather, what Jesus is doing is showing us that when we do bad things, it's not just because we're around the wrong people or in a bad environment. It's because we have a heart that desires those things. So we have here two competing worldviews. We have an environmental worldview. The view of the Pharisees, in other words, what's around you makes you bad. And Jesus' worldview is an internal evil worldview. It's an intrinsic, it comes from us. Paul summarizes this external way of thinking in Colossians 2. He says, why is if you were still alive, do you submit to regulations? Don't handle, don't touch, don't taste. Because bad things come from outside us, this way of thinking says. and If we can avoid these bad things, if we can avoid touching them, tasting them, hearing them, feeling them, then we can stay good. But the worldview that Jesus teaches is that what comes out of us is what defiles us or makes us unclean. Rather than the source of evil being around us, environmental, it is within us. They come right out of us. So the problem isn't out there. We are the source of our own uncleanness. And if this is true, no matter how many times you wash your hands, you can't be truly clean. If you could theoretically keep every law of God, and you can't, You still couldn't be clean because it wouldn't cleanse your heart. Hand-washing can't clean a dirty heart. And that's the very point the Pharisees have missed. And this worldview is alive and well in churches today. We believe that, you know, Jesus does the initial heart-cleaning and saving us, but but then we can sanctify ourselves, we can become more like Christ by washing our hands. Or whatever the tradition is, it may not be hand-washing. But Jesus is confronting this line of thinking that says that we can be good people as long as we avoid certain behaviors or keep certain traditions. The problem with this is not that it views too many things as sin. It's much too low a view of sin. It views our biggest problem as out there rather than in here. The problem with this thought is that far from the problems out there being our greatest things that mess us up, it's me. It's what's on the inside. In other words, Jesus is saying, you have stage five cancer, and you will die, and you want to fix that by washing your hands. That cannot work. Have you ever tried to teach a child what it means to point? Now, after a while, we all get this intuitively, but when you're real little, you say, you look at that there, what do they look at? They look at your finger, don't they? They don't look where you're pointing, and and you try, like, no, no, look over there. And it takes a while to learn that, actually. And what Jesus is saying here is that God's words are pointing somewhere. They're pointing to our hearts. But His disciples can't see it. All they can see is the pointer. They can see the law, but they don't see what the law is pointing to. Jesus is talking about the very core of human nature. Our culture does the same thing it tells us we're good. And in the sense that we're all made in God's image and in some ways reflect that, that's true. A popular uh, Christian website, the Babylon Bee, it's a satire site, published a piece with this headline, Serial Killer Released After Explaining That Murder Was Only 3% of What He Did. And we tend to think about ourselves that way too, don't we? I mean, it's just, just a small part of who I am. The good outweighs the bad. But our biggest problem, Jesus says, is our unclean heart. So the only antidote... For legalistic thinking, and that's thinking that is both tempted to add rules to what God has said, as well as take away what God ha- take away from what God has said, isn't to throw off those things, but is rather a minute by minute, moment by moment meditation on the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news that Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the law of God in our place. So now we never obey, hoping that God will accept us. Jesus has already done that. God will accept us. Rather, we obey because God has already accepted us. It completely changes the flow of the law. In other words, pre-Jesus, the idea is this, like obey and God will accept you. Post-Jesus, it's you are accepted. So follow God's word. In love, devote yourself to the God who loved you first, the God who pursued you when you didn't deserve to be pursued. It's like we come to God and we 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 just got to change our thinking because in our hearts we are all legalistic thinkers. And we get it twisted. And we forget that our relationship with God isn't ultimately based on my obedience. It's based on the obedience of the one perfect mediator between God and men, the man, Christ, Jesus. That's the only one who can perfectly fulfill God's expectations for any of us. You cannot do it. The way to acceptance acceptance with God is to find yourself in Christ, the one who can keep the law of God because you cannot do it. And when this happens, when we get this, it completely changes the nature of our relationship with God. You see, when we live life this way, if I obey, you will accept. If I keep the law, God, you will be pleased with me. It's like a child who thinks that the love of her father is conditioned on her obedience. Now, does he care about her obedience? Yes, of course he cares about her obedience. But a good father never looks at that child and says, I will love you if you obey, right? That father looks at that child and says, I love you because you are my child. The child gladly obeys we mix it around and we think that God accepts us because of our obedience. It's like the child who walks through life feeling she will never measure up. And the truth of this in our relationship with God is that we cannot measure up. That's that's what God's word tells us. We all fall short of that measure, the perfect standard of the glory of God. We will all fall short. And yet, in Christ, we can meet and exceed anything that God expects for us. So rather than Walking through life, trying to please God because of our obedience, we walk through life knowing that God is pleased with us already because of Jesus, and we gladly obey. And the mindset makes all the difference in our relationship with the Lord. People who understand that we cannot improve what Jesus has done, nor can we make it any worse, know that because of Christ, God is perfectly satisfied that is absolutely good news and people who begin to understand that are moved to worship God and walk in a relationship with God that is no longer conditioned upon our performance. But rather that becomes truly relational. Truly, you might say it changes our heart. And our heart is knit to God's heart in a way that a father's, child is knit, or a father's heart is knit to his child and the child instinctively loves and longs to fulfill the father's will. And when that happens, it leads to worship. It leads to love. It leads to joyful obedience, not begrudging obedience. So let's take a moment now and respond to God's word. In repentance and faith, I'll give you a moment to uh, talk to to God personally, and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk to him now.